U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the one, the only, XO in existence, Steven. Hey there, everyone. Other XOs may say they're XOs, but really, they're only PXOs. Well, I mean, you killed them all off. I mean, we aren't supposed to admit that on the air. I mean, that that could be an admission of guilt. Oh, sorry. I, I'll, I'll cut this out. Don't worry about it. Fantastic. My lawyer will talk with your lawyer while I iron out the details. We have lawyers? Yeah, that's true. We don't really have the budget for lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so last week we had gone through and talked about just Grant versus Lee. So... There are actually three battles that did involve the Navy, so we're going to go through them real quick. And then we'll head over to the Shenandoah Valley. Oh, and we're on the Eastern Campaign. Still. But we're finally going waterborne again. Of the American Civil War, yes. So, are you ready to get underway? Let's cast off. Alright, so the first one that we're up, going to be real quick, is the Battle of Shift Creek. This was fought on May 9th of 1864. This involved five gunboats, 14,000 men on the United States side, or the Union side, and 4,200 Confederate soldiers. So, when you said a battle for a creek, my first thought was the Confederate Navy and the U.S. Navy just essentially making some, you know, summer camp rafts practically and slinging spitballs and mud at each other. Well, I have a little bit of a description if you want to hear it. I'd, I'd love to hear it. Okay. So on May 9th, Major General Benjamin Butler, he was the American general, he moved towards Petersburg. And Bushrod Johnson, who was in charge of the Confederacy, men was like no i'm gonna meet you and i'm gonna fight you and this happened at swift creek this is described as a premature confederate attack at the church there called arrow field and this was driven back with heavy losses but as you know has been tradition here lately, the Union forces did not follow up on their retreat. So after the skirmish, Butler, he seemed happy to just tear up the railroad tracks, and so he didn't keep attacking the defenders. Hmm. Pursue fleeing army, act like a toddler with an expensive Lego set. And hard call. Yeah. So... With the advance to the Swift Creek, there were five federal gunboats steaming up the Appomattox River, and they wanted to bombard Fort Clifton. While Hinks' U.S. Colored Troops Infantry Division, you know, just had to walk through marshy ground. I don't know why he decided he wanted them to go through mud, but... There you go. Well, nothing raises the morale of your men like going through mucky, probably leech-infested terrain. 
Yeah. But on the bright side of the Confederacy, they were able to drive off the gunboats fairly quickly. And that made the infantry attack just melt and go away. So there you go. The Battle of Swift Creek. Yeah, for some reason I was expecting the Navy to be a little more involved than, oh no, they're coming. Paddle away! Yeah. Every once in a while we need some, a battle that's uh, short and swift. This one was certainly both. You, you saw what I did there, right? Swift Creek, short and swift. Not... Man, it's just lost on you. Yeah. Jeez. That, yep, yep. Why do I even try? This one went right over my head. <laughs> So next up, we have the Battle of Wilson's Wharf. This one we have a bit more information on. The strength of this was on the Union side, 1,100 men, two gunboats, and the USS Dawn. And on the Confederate side, 2,500 guys. So this battle happened on May 24th between Confederate General, Major General, Fitzhugh Lee, his cavalry division, when he attacked the Union Supply Depot at Wilson's Wharf on the James River, which is the east side of Charles City in Virginia. Alrighty. So the Union commander was a guy named Wild. He was a physician and a ardent abolitionist. He lost his left arm at the Battle of South Mountain in 1862. And after he recovered, he raised a unit of former slaves and called it Wild's African Brigade. So he's almost like a good guy, Stonewall. Yeah, so far so good, right? You say that like uh, we're about to turn around and not like this guy. Well, I mean, it is 1862. We can give them the benefit of the doubt, but, I mean, they're all bastards at one point or another. Very true. So, during the winter of 63 into 64, Wilde leads his soldiers on a expedition on the coast of North Carolina and completely just terrified the local white population who were accustomed to the African being slaves. He lands his men in Virginia in May of 1864 and begins building the fort at Wilson's Wharf. This is just one in a series of outposts that were guarding supply lines for the Union Major General Benjamin Butler during his Bermuda 100 campaign. Now, this wharf was at a strategic bend in the James River, and it overlooked a couple of high bluffs. This was around two miles from Sherwood Forest, which is the home of the former U.S. President John Tyler. Wait, so it was actually called Sherwood Forest? Yep. Did they pick up a band of merry men to help them out? No, they frightened them all. Oh, well, that's not cool of them. Well, I mean, when you bring a bunch of freed African-American soldiers into an area full of white people who have never known a free African-American, they're going to be pretty damn scared. And they should be. And, you know, Wilde didn't help either. He encouraged it. 
he sent his soldiers in to recruit slaves. And actually, in one case, they whipped a plantation owner who had a reputation for harshness to his slaves. On one hand, yes, I, I am glad that they're getting some payback. On the other hand, he is really leaning into negative stereotypes to uh, get the results he wants. Yeah. A little bit of one, a little bit of the other. All of it is not, you know, making his life easier there. Now, the Richmond newspaper, they, of course, denounce all of his activities. And they actually put a lot of pressure on the government of Jefferson Davis to put a stop to Wild and everything he's doing. So... Jefferson Davis succumbs to all the political pressure. He sends, he, well, he goes to his military advisor, General Braxton Bragg, and Bragg says, you know what, let's send Lee's Cavalry Division to, quote, break up this nest and stop their uncivilized proceedings. That is a rather fancy way to say, please get them the hell out of here. Yeah. Now, of course, Lee is actually, this is Fitzhugh Lee, and he's related to Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee is his uncle. That's just a little... No, that is cool. Factoid for you. So, Lee takes... So, we'll call him Fitz Lee. How about that? He takes... Elements of three cavalry brigades plus the 5th South Carolina Cavalry Regiment, which equals to about 2,500 men and one cannon. And they march for 40 miles from Atlee's Station to reach Wilson's Wharf. Now, as all the Lees are very confident, he expected to fight a rabble. But that's not what he found. No. Yeah. He went up to this fort, a fort that was named Fort Pocahontas, and he found all of the defenders alert and ready for a fight. <laughs> oh, come on down. I hope you come on down. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Wild, he had 1,100 men and two cannons. The forces consisted of the 1st USCT and four companies of the 10th USCT battery, the 3rd New York Artillery was the only all-white unit in the defenses. Okay. So, I, I gotta give props to Wilde for sticking to his guns. He's, you know, being very inclusive, except for, you know, the artillery people. The USS Down lay in the James River, and there they were to deliver fire support for the fort. The fort was a crescent-shaped facility facing north. It was about 0.8 miles long, and it straddled the road to the wharf. It was anchored to the west on a bluff and to the east by a branch of the Cannon Creek. So this fort cannot be flanked. They dug deep, broad ditches in front of it to help, you know, shore up the defenses. 
Okay. So that is the battlefield. So at noon on May 24th, Lee is standing there and goes, we got this, guys. Charge! (laughs) And they charge and they dive right into the Union pickets who were posted near the Charles City Road, which is about a mile north of of the fort. At about 13.30, so about an hour and a half later, the fort was invested. So Lee sends two officers under a flag of truth with a message demanding the surrender of the garrison. He did make a few promises. He promised that the black soldiers would be taken to Richmond and treated as prisoners of war. Seriously? Yeah. I mean, that's good on him. Incredibly unexpected. Yeah. Now, he also did promise that if they did not surrender, he would not be, quote, answerable for the consequences. Well, that ain't a threat if I've ever heard one. That is one heck of a threat. Wild and all of his men, they interpreted the threat to mean that some of the men would be returned to their former enslavers, and others would be tried by the state authorities for inciting insurrection, which pretty much means everybody's going to die. So Wilde sends back a written reply and said, quote, We will try it, and verbally told the two officers, quote, Take the fort if you can. So Lee plans a two-pronged attack. One of the brigades were to move east of the fort, concealed in the ravines of the Cannon Creek. This was to plan a distraction so these guys could sneak around. The 5th South Carolina were to dance around and make a ruckus to the western end of the fort. So these guys, they go as far as the ditch, and they were just driven back by heavy, heavy gunfire. As the guys that were going up the creek advanced, then they were discovered pretty quickly because the distraction didn't work. Mm -hmm. And they were also driven back by heavy, heavy gunfire. So the first group rushed forward again across an open field, which is not a good thing to do because they were met by interlocking fields of musket fire and also canister around from two 10-pound cannons. And also, you remember the USS Dawn? I do. Yeah, they fired on them as well. That's not good. That's a meat grinder. That, that is a rock in a hard place. So Lee's, he's sitting there looking for a weak point in the defenses, not finding anything. And then at 1600, Union reinforcements arrive. This is the steamer George Washington carrying four companies. So Lee sees this and says, well, gentlemen, we are out. And they retreat to the Charles City courthouse. And the next morning, Lee looks over and goes, yeah, that's still a no. Let's go back to LT Station. And they ride out. So at the end of all this, about 200 Confederate soldiers are killed or wounded. And the Union loses six 
and has 40 wounded. A few African-American soldiers are captured. Unfortunately, some of them were just shot right on the spot. And one of them was sent back to his former enslaver in Richmond. Now, of course, this battle really didn't have very much effect on the outcome of the war. But the North did score a victory with the propaganda. This was the first significant encounter between the Army of Northern Virginia and black soldiers, who fought very, very well in a defensive battle against a superior attacking force. Because even though it was good that they were allowing black soldiers to fight, plenty of people in the North were still incredibly racist. Right. Now, you want to know what they said happened in the South? There were, there were tens of thousands of them. They were in the trees. They were coming out of the ground. We were surrounded. We didn't have a prayer. No. Nope. They claimed that there were six gunboats and a huge amount of white soldiers. Oh, they didn't even mention that it was black soldiers. They, they, well, they, were, they did say that there were black soldiers. Oh, okay. But they said that the majority of the soldiers were white. Oh, the hoops you'll jump through to keep your narrative going. Yeah. And of course, Fitz, he minimized both his strength and his losses. He's like, it didn't really hurt us. Don't worry about it. Nobody died. There, a few a few guys sprained their ankles, and they were just in the infirmary. Yeah. So that was that. So we're going to the last one of this, which is the Battle of Trent's Reach. The forces on the Union side, 30 artillery pieces and one fort with four shore batteries on the land and one monitor, two gunboats, and a torpedo boat in the water. The Confederacy had 16 artillery pieces and two shore batteries, and in the water, three ironclads, five gunboats, and three torpedo boats. Oh my. Yes. And just to refresh, torpedo boat still means a mine layer, effectively. Or are these the effectively jousting torpedoes? These are the jousting torpedoes. Okay. Because I know we're still in that era where torpedo doesn't mean modern torpedo, but now it has multiple meanings. Yes, we're slowly going away from the mines now and into jousting torpedoes, jousting explosives. So we're getting closer to modern torpedoes, but we're still not there yet. I still think it's cool as hell. Jousting tournaments between oh, yeah. naval vessels. Absolutely. So... The Confederate forces were under the direction of a guy named Commodore John K. Mitchell, and he was in command of the James River Squadron. His flagship was the ironclad, the CSS Fredericksburg, and she weighed an estimated 2,500 tons. She was pretty formidable. She was armed with one 11-inch smoothbore cannon and three smaller rifled guns. With her was the CSS Richmond and the CSS Virginia II. The Richmond was estimated at 800 tons and carried six guns, and the Virginia II was estimated at 650 tons and armed with four guns with a crew of about 150. 
which, you know, all the other two ironclads had about 150. So about, you know, 450 men went in with the uh, ironclads. They also deployed eight other vessels. Three of them were lashed to the sides of the ironclads. And they also had the torpedo boat CSS Scorpion towed down the river by the gunboat Drury. Hmm. They also had the gunboats Nansmond. Why, guys? Why? The Hampton and the Beaufort and the Torpedo. They all had one or two guns and they displaced between one to 200 tons. The Torpedo boats, the CSS Wasp and the CSS Hornet, were the last two boats in this fleet. All of the Torpedo boats carried one spar torpedo and, you know, they really weren't used in the engagement at Trent's Reach. So Mitchell's orders were to take his squadron down the James River to attack a supply base at City Point, which belonged to General Grant, because he had just recently taken over the area as part of the Petersburg campaign. And they would like now back, to failing that. We don't want them to have the resources. Exactly. Now, to get to this base, the rebels had to fight their way past a number of obstacles in and along the river, which includes warships, minefields, and a net. There was also Fort Bradley and four shore batteries. They had to get through all of that stuff. So not exactly a leisurely sailing trip. Yeah. Now, you did notice how I translated torpedoes to mines for you, so you could understand. <laughs> I do appreciate that. You're wild. No. Yeah, you're wild. No. <laughs> you're welcome. So the mines, of course, are widely used because they are very effective. So they established a minefield in a lime from bank to bank. Behind this was a net to catch these explosives if they came free. And, you know, it fouls up boats. <laughs> now, the Union fortifications were under the command of a guy named Colonel Henry H. Pierce of the 1st Connecticut Artillery. They had over 30 guns between all of these fortifications. The naval forces were under Captain William A. Parker of the James River Flotilla. His flagship was the ironclad monitor USS Ornadago. Ornago. Something like that, because they have to name these things complicated. <laughs> so the enemy cannot pronounce them and then hunt them down. And this thing came in at 2,592 tons. This thing is heavy huge she carried two 15 inch smooth bore delgren guns big boomsticks yeah she also had two 150 pounder parrot rifles at this time she was the only monitor on the river but she did have with her the side wheel gunboats the uss massasoit and the uss hunchback only the second one I think I pronounced correctly. <laughs> <laughs> the 
The Massaset was a large ship. She weighed 974 tons, and she had 10 guns on board her of different sighted, including two 100-pounders. The Hunchback was smaller at 512 tons, and she had four guns, with one of them being a 100-pounder. There was also the torpedo boat, the USS Spiten Devil, and was involved in this battle, unlike the two Confederate ones. Now, keep in mind, though, this is an experimental boat. She was equipped with a spar torpedo. So, since she only had the torpedo, she didn't actually do any of the actual fighting, her job was to ram and go boom. She was like a guard dog for the other boats. Yeah. Get too close and we'll sick our little chihuahua. Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't sound like one because I would aim for that thing first. <laughs> so the Confederate Navy starts their attack in the evening of January 23rd of 1865. Mitchell, he weighs anchor at Chafflin's Bluff just after sunset. His first task is to sneak by the Union Battery on Signal Hill and Fort Brady in complete darkness. Colonel Pierce, he made a report that at 2000, one of his lookouts on the fort spotted the three rebel ironclads and a couple of smaller support vessels moving down the river. So Pierce immediately orders his gunners to begin firing. Guess what, Mitchell? They saw you. Whoops. Yeah. The first shot of this battle was from a heavy gun mounted on the fort. And once this thing goes off, everybody starts opening up on the fleet. Now... Unfortunately, because of the construction of the fort, it's described as malconstruction. The artillery could not be fired downriver, so they, they couldn't fire on them for very long. They fired about 25 rounds before they were out of range. So, even though the, the Confederacy didn't have the... Surprised that they wanted to just sneak by. 25 rounds is not a lot, especially for ironclads. No. So after getting past the fort, Mitchell continues on to the minefield at Trent's Reach. Well, that sounds like it'll be a little tricky. Mm-hmm. And while he does this, two Confederate batteries with at least 16 cannons open up on the fort and they just continued to bombard it throughout the night. The garrison there returns fire, and one 100-pounder in the fort is destroyed. Though Colonel Pierce says that he dislodged two rebel pieces before receiving orders to cease fire. The Confederate Navy arrives at Trench Reach at about 22.30, and the Richmond and Virginia 2 anchor a half mile from the obstruction to provide covering fire while the Fredericksburg and a few of the other smaller boats clear the way. 
Now, along with the mines, there were several sunken vessels there as well. And in between the sunken vessels, there are spar torpedoes. So this is pretty good defenses that you got to try to get through. Yeah, yeah. This isn't just a, a quick stroll up the uh, channel and make a few turns left and right. Yeah. So the crew of the Fredericksburg start working to remove the spar torpedo while three torpedo boats under Lieutenant Charles Savvy Reed make a reconnaissance outing of the channel. This was all done under fire from three Union shore batteries and sharpshooters. So clearing the obstruction lasts all night and into the morning. And of course, all this gunfire is making a lot of noise. So, the Union, they dispatch a few of their warships to defend Trent's Reach. The USS Anandego was the first to make it to the area. But Captain Parker, he's like, you know what, let's go back down the river a bit. I saw a pontoon bridge back there at Aiken's Landing. I'm going to have a lot more area to maneuver, so that's going to be good for a fight. <laughs> and, of course, he's criticized later for not engaging the Confederacy as soon as he could. But he said to in his defense that, quote, chances of capturing the whole fleet would be increased by allowing them to come downriver to the bridge. So let them come, let them get cocky. And then we get him. Yeah, that was his thought process. So after all of this, the engagements just stopped until the next day. Everybody was like, you know what? We're tired. It's nap time. <laughs> and General Grant is informed of the situation. The general, he's the one that's pissed at Parker for withdrawing. And he orders the Anandageo to... Get in line with the other gunboats. They're going to attack the rebel fleet. So the Sputin Devil arrives in the area the night before. Mm -hmm. And they have orders from a guy named David Dixon Porter, who is a rear admiral, to sink any ironclads that attempt to sail on to City Point during the evening. Now, Parker... He hears all this from Grant, and he's like, no, I'm not doing that. I refuse. That is stupid. <laughs> That's dumb. You're dumb. So Grant complains to the Secretary of the Navy, a guy named Gideon Willis, and Parker is relieved of command. Now, Lincoln, he suggests to a guy named David G. Farragut, who is an admiral, to take command of the operations. So, you know, a suggestion from a president is not a suggestion. I mean, you could take it under advisement. Not saying it'd be a good idea. So, Farragut is actually not there at the time because he was just got done leading the New Orleans campaign. So, while he starts get, 
to go there because again it's not a suggestion it's actually an order he puts commodore william radford in charge while he travels now there was a guy named nichols who was on board the uss new ironsides and he was at norfolk so the defense uh, of the james fell onto the xo of the Onondago. This guy was Commander Edward T. Nichols. And, you know, Grant had a lot of confidence in this guy. But, you know, best wishes and all that. When the battle started, Captain Parker, he comes back into the picture and says, Guess what? I'm the one in charge because nobody else is here. <laughs> and he leads the attack on the 24th. Now, something does go right for the Union. The tide goes out and grounds four rebel ships. They really were not paying attention, were they? Well, I mean, they're clearing obstructions. Maybe they just got distracted. Now, they did finish clearing these obstructions at 0145. So he steams the Fredericksburg back over to where the rest of his ships are anchored. And that is when Mitchell discovers the Virginia II, the Richmond, and the Drury. And the Scorpion. All of them stuck on the river bottom. And, of course, they can't get free until high tide. Which is going to come around 1100. So, in 9 hours, 15 minutes? Oh, well, they'll be fine, I'm sure. Well, you would think that. But... The sun comes up. When the sun comes up, the Union batteries can see better. <laughs> and when the Union batteries can see better... They're more accurate. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how that works. So the Richmond is now starting to get hit repeatedly. Thankfully, she is armored. So this protects her from serious damage. Now, it's different for the four other boats you know why why is that because they're mainly wood whoopsie so they're pretty much torn to pieces drury is actually so heavily damaged that her crew abandons ship and 15 minutes after they get off at about 0655 around from one of the batteries they ignite the powder magazine and you know what happens when the powder magazine is ignited? Well, uh, big boom. Big boom. Yep. Yep. There's a violent explosion and no more boat. Now, there's something else that happens during a huge explosion. Big shockwave? Big shockwave. And it heavily damages the scorpion which forces the crew to abandon her. <laughs> They're royally messing this up left and right. Yeah. Two men are killed on the Scorpion, and it sinks along with the Drury. It gets worse. Go on. At, at 10.30, lookout spot the Anadego and two gunboats and the Spiten Devil coming right at them. At 10.45, the Onondaga opens up on the ironclads that are stuck 
grounded at a distance of about half a mile. Which, if they're shooting at a completely immobile target, they won't have any issue hitting. Yeah, it's it's not as hard as a moving target. And the Rebels cannot return fire because they can't maneuver their boats. They can't. They can't bring their guns to bear. Turn her about. Bring her to port. We can't. We're stuck. Remember? All right. Next idea. We take the cannons to the top deck and then manually aim them aim them at the enemy ship. We're an ironclad. Our guns are fixed. Next suggestion. We ask some friendly neighbors to give us a push. We're in enemy territory. Well, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all good ideas, though. So, Mitchell writes, quote, During the whole time while aground, neither the Richmond nor the Virginia could get a gun to bear upon the enemy. So, 1100 rolls around, and the tide had been starting to come back in for a number of hours now, and that is when the ironclad started to be refloated. And they could start maneuvering. <laughs> oh, thank heavens. We can get out of here. <laughs> well, now they can bring their guns to bear. So, Anandago fires around seven shots at Virginia 2. And all of a sudden, the Virginia 2 turns and returns a single shot. Just one? This was to observe their range and accuracy now the duel does not last long because the confederacy was like you know what guys we're not gonna win this look at all the sunken boats around us let's just withdraw a bit sounds like quitter talk to me but the union does the same thing so the boats are just staring at each other out of range but the batteries are still in range, and they keep firing all day and night. So at 2100, Commodore Mitchell orders his men to make a, quote, final cruise to City Point. But they figured out pretty quickly that the Virginia 2 was unmanageable. She had been struck 70 times already. And this caused steam to leak from her deck, which means her pilot could not see where they were going. Maybe just have somebody stay on the stand on the bow and shout, Starboard! No, no, my starboard! Yeah, but that guy's going to die pretty quickly, because they're still getting fired on. Hmm. Because the Union had also erected lights called Drummond Lights. And this illuminated the area around the minefield, pretty much allowing all the batteries to fire as accurately during the night as they did during the day. Mitchell looks around, thinks to himself, you know what? We've lost this. So at around 0245, he orders his fleet to turn around and leave. Now this battle is over. But guess what they gotta do to get back into friendly waters? Go all the way back, through the minefield, through the fortifications. 
Well, no, they don't got to worry about the minefield. They never got through the minefield. <laughs> yeah, they got to go back past Fort Bradley and the Signal Hill Battery. So when they pass, another exchange of artillery happened. But the rebels, they were like, you know what? This isn't as bad. Let's try to, you know, <laughs> silence these guns at least. Let's try and make this not entirely pointless. Have a little bit of a pride when we get back. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Colonel Pierce expected the ironclads to come back. While the fight was happening at Trent's Reach, the garrison at Fort Bradley and the batteries, they focused on improving the defenses of their positions. Pierce placed pickets down the river and at 0300, one of them came back and told the colonel that the rebels are on their way back. So the fighting that started again was described as being as being very intense. And at no time were the Confederacy able to silence the Union guns. And they were like starting to cry as they just limped away. We're sorry. We're sorry we went up the channel, okay? We learned our lesson. We won't do it again. Just let us go home. Sure. <laughs> Between 1,000 and 1,500 rounds were fired by Mitchell's ships in this final battle. So, at the end of all of this, three Union troops were known to have been killed in the battle, and 48 were slightly wounded by splinters. The Onondago was only slightly damaged and none of her crew were injured now according to official records the rebels lost four on the Drury and the scorpion with 15 wounded but other sources cite that they lost six men on the virginia 2 alone so of course this was a fail for the confederacy a complete fail sounds like it they had nothing to show for this advance other than, you know, a mess of ships, most of which suffered some type of battle damage. Commodore Mitchell, he is relieved of command, which is not surprising for this huge defeat. And he is replaced by Admiral Raphael Simmons. So that, my friend, was the... Battle of Trent's Reach. How was that? Uh, the most Navy action we've seen in several episodes, it feels like. Well, yeah. We had to... I mean, we're covering the Eastern Theater, and a lot of it's bad. Land battles. Uh, a lot so. of it's rather landlocked. You know, Richmond, Virginia, yeah. Washington, D.C., and a lot of areas in between there are not exactly coastal areas. That's true. So we'll briefly go through it, but, you know, we're not going to go in depth, but, I mean, it's good to know. All right. So that will finish out the Grant versus Lee. But look at the time. We're not starting the Shenandoah Valley today. <laughs> no, I, I imagine not. So instead, we will honor one of our fallen angels. So we are partnered with HeroCards.us. They 
honor our fallen angels. So today we are honoring Petty Officer Second Class Robert Dean Stetton. His hometown was Waldorf, Maryland. He was part of the Underwater Construction Team 1 in Norfolk, Virginia. He received the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and Prisoner of War Medal. His date of sacrifice was June 15, 1985 in Beirut, Lebanon. He was 23. This was not during any conflict. So Robbie Stetton was born into a proud Navy family on November 17, 1961 in Waterbury, Connecticut. His father, Richard, served for 26 years and retired as Senior Chief Petty Officer. So after retiring, he continued to work for the Navy as a civilian for another 20 years. Robert's mother, Patricia, served in the Navy before leaving active duty to raise the family. And his brother, Kenneth, served for 20 years and retired as a Navy SEAL. He had another brother, Patrick, and like Robert, was a CV diver and served for 10 years in the same underwater construction team one. So while all the children were young, the Stetham family moved to Virginia Beach, Virginia, and later to Waldorf, Maryland, where Robert attended Thomas Stone High School and played defensive back for the Cougars football team, and he graduated in 1980. On May 4th in 1981, when he was 19, Robert entered the United States Navy and was assigned to Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 62 in Gulfport, Mississippi, for training as a CB steelworker. CB is, is a nickname given to construction battalions based on their initials CB. And their logo is a B with a sailor's hat holding a Thompson machine gun. Robert Stetham received more training to become a second-class Navy diver assigned to Underwater Construction Team 1 based out of Norfolk, Virginia. This assignment took him to Nia Makri, just east of Athens, Greece. On June 1985, Robert Stetham was returning from Nia Makri with five teammates on a civilian airliner, Trans World Airlines Flight 847. And after taking off from Athens, the flight was hijacked by Shiite Muslim extremists aligned with Hezbollah, which was a Iran-funded Lebanese terrorist organization. The hijackers forced the flight to make multiple landings in Algiers, Algeria, and in Beirut, Lebanon. They held 39 people hostage for 17 days, demanding the release of Lebanese and Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. And also, they demanded to know which of the passengers were Jews. The hijackers gathered passports looking for Jewish-sounding names. With the passports, the terrorists identified the six Navy teammates as American military and singled out Stetham for brutal beatings, threatening to kill all passengers unless their demands were met. One of the terrorists proved their point by shooting Robert Stetham in the head and dumping his body out onto the Beirut airport tarmac. He was 23 years old. For his courage in not succumbing to the brutality of his captors, Robert Dean Stetham was posthumously awarded the Bronze Star on March 12, 1986. His citation reads as follows. 
for heroic achievement on 14 June 1985, while assigned to Detachment November Mike 85 of Underwater Construction Team 1, deployed to the Naval Communications Station, Neomarchy, Greece. Petty Officer Stetham displayed exceptional valor and professional integrity while a hostage of militant Shait hijackers of Trans World Airlines Flight 847 at Athens International Airport, Algiers, Algeria, and at Beirut, Lebanon. Exhibiting physical, moral, and emotional courage beyond extraordinary limits, Petty Officer Stetham endured a senseless and brutal beatings at the hand of his fanatical captors. He drew upon unwavering inner strength and absorbed the punishment. The hijackers were infuriated by his refusal to succumb, a symbol to them of the strength of the United States of America, and in their cowardly desperation shot him to death. Petty Officer Stetham's courage, steadfast determination, and loyal devotion to duty reflected great credit upon himself and were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Petty Officer Robert Dean Stetham is buried at Arlington National Cemetery, Section 59. Among numerous tributes memorializing Robert Stetham, in 1995, the U.S. Navy destroyer USS Stetham DDG-63 was named in his honor. A vocational school in Pomfret, Maryland is named the Robert D. Stetham Educational Center. And in 2010, Stetham received an honorary promotion to Construction Man Master Chief Petty Officer from the U.S. Navy. So Master Chief Petty Officer Robert Dean Stetham. Thank you. Exo, would you like to take us out? Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If you did, share your thoughts. Leave a review on your podcasting app of choice. And if you'd like, we can even read it on the air. You can also email us. Our email is usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter handle. You can reach us with at usnhistorypod. In the show notes, you'll find a link to our Discord, where you can engage with us even more directly. And with that, we wish you fair winds and following seas. See you next time, folks. Goodbye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. (laughs) 